0: Welcome to the What Are We Talking About? podcast, also known as WAUTA. This is an inquisitive search for stories that need light shed on them. I am Drea, the host of the WAUTA podcast. I will be presenting stories with some incredible hosts, and then every two weeks I will be presenting some stories on my own. Regardless of the format, these stories will be focused on BIPOC and LGBTQIA2 perspectives. June is commonly known as pride month where we celebrate lgbtqia2 identities but did you know that june is also black music appreciation month originally coined as black music month by president jimmy carter in 1979 and then renamed african american music appreciation month by obama regardless of what phrasing you would like to call it We owe a lot, a whole lot, of the music that we have to black folks. So in order to celebrate both of those things this week, I wanted to bring you some queer black folks stories. It seems appropriate, and I don't know that we hear enough about them. So I'll be sharing some of those tales with you today. Before we get into that, what are we drinking? I don't know about you but for me summer is usually a gin time of year. Gin fizz being something I truly love but do not have a shaker that responds well to egg white in it. It tends to explode if you don't have a good seal. So I usually just make a little gin tonic but I ran out of tonic and coincidentally have several cans of guarana which is an ingredient in red bull or other energy drinks that comes from the amazon forest in brazil and something that i had when i was down in brazil back when i studied abroad as a a young wide-eyed girl so it's kind of fun to have this kind of sweet soda with some gin in it for today so that i can get amped up for these stories I don't know what you were drinking, feel free to give me your favorite gin cocktails. I would love to mix things up now that I am in my very own apartment with a little bar cart and it's rather empty because it's expensive to move and work is a little rough and I've got all kinds of financial pressures, but I would love to explore some more cocktails. So feel free to send me your favorites for the summertime you know I'm drinking out of a rainbow straw. It's Pride Month. Pride Month baby and Black Music Appreciation Month. So, let's dive into some incredible stories that will give inspiration for all, really, truly. Starting off is a story that I came across on a Facebook post back in February for Black History Month and didn't get to share it then, so It kind of launched the theme and tone for this episode because I thought it was an incredible story and have found several other incredible stories, some I knew, some I didn't, that should be known by way, way, way more people. We're gonna start off with Mary Jones. This is an article that comes from Transis City, which is a publication that serves the Kansas and Missouri transgender community. The story of Mary Jones is one of the earliest of a transgender person in the American history, as in the United States of America, although whether she was a gay crossdresser or a transsexual woman is not known. Born as a male named Peter Sawali and a resident of New York City in the 1830s, Mary went to trial on June 11th, 1836 for pickpocketing a wallet containing $99 from a white john she had slept with the prior night. During her arrest, Mary attempted to dispose of two additional wallets hidden in her clothes by her breasts, and when the police took Mary's key and entered her home, they found dozens more wallets, watches, and trinkets, most of them belonging to the city's male upper class, who, although knowing Mary had stolen from them, had become fearful to report the losses to the police, Lest their vices be known to an increasingly morally conservative public. Which I think is just really fabulous. She was stealing from these upper class white men, and they knew, but weren't going to say anything because they didn't want to get outed. Hilarious. Really. Revolutionary. Mad props. Upon Mary's interrogation and strip search, it was discovered she had male anatomy and had created a leather device in the shape and form of a vagina tied around their waist to keep clients from learning Mary's birth sex. Which again, the ingenuity of this is incredible. At her trial, Mary testified, I have been in the practice of waiting upon girls of ill fame, and made up their beds, and received the company at the door, and received the money for rooms, etc., and they induced me to dress in women's clothes, saying I looked so much better in them, and I have always attended parties among the people of my own color dressed this way, and in New Orleans, or Nolens, I always dress this way. It should be no surprise to anyone that in 1836, an effeminate quote-unquote homosexual prostitute of color accused of thievery stood no chance of being found innocent. It was the summer of 1836, just recently after anti-abolitionist and anti-amalgamationist riots in New York City, and as she was led to the courtroom, she was surrounded by a loud and disorderly mob which accosted and prodded her. She was convicted of grand larceny and imprisoned for five years. Her trial was sensationalized, and she was humiliated, and her image publicized as, quote-unquote, the man-monster. Although, according to Nyong'o, quoted in this article, the use of the term monster referred much more to the fact that Jones was black and her clients white, rather than having to do with her apparent sex. The author says, I believe there is some disagreement on this point, however... I mean, either way you cut it, monster is not, (laughs) monster's not a really appropriate thing to call anybody, especially in this position. After her release, Mary was convicted again and sent to Sing Sing prison for five months for simply cross-dressing. After release, she disappeared from recorded history, which is pretty great. I still just love this tale of all this time working your way through New York's upper white male class, and getting paid and taking, taking some reparations there. It's kind of incredible. From there, we are going to move over to Queer Portraits in History, which are stories that have been gathered of queer people in the 19th and 20th centuries, which are written and drawn, which are incredible illustrations, by Michelle Rosenthal. Now, there are dozens of stories listed on this site and I have narrowed down to queer, mostly femme, black stories. And I'm gonna do them in a chronological order, that way we have a little bit of continuity here. Mary Jones is still the first of these stories, so it segues nicely into these. Next is Ma Rainey. She was born in 1886 and died in 1939. American singer and performer and one of the earliest professional blues singers, often called the mother of the blues, which is really, really relevant in Black Music Appreciation Month. She began performing as a young teenager, singing and dancing as part of a traveling minstrel show. She took her stage name after she married Will Paul Rainey. The two later headlined their own troupe. Rainey had her first exposure to the blues while traveling through the minstrel circuit in the South. She adopted the style as her own, singing it with her rough and powerful voice, but polished enough to appeal to a broader audience. The accompanying stage performance often began with her stepping out of a giant prop gramophone in a flashy sequin dress. It was immensely popular, and when Paramount approached her with a record deal, she became one of the earliest recorded blues performers. She made over 100 records within a span of five years, which is truly impressive the blues were meant to be a little risque which might explain how she got away with the openly lesbian song prove it on me which includes the line went out last night with a crowd of my friends they must have been women because i don't like no men the song could have been inspired by an incident in which the police raided an all-female party turned orgy that Rainey had been hosting Hell yeah. Bessie Smith, a fellow bisexual blues singer whom Rainey mentored, bailed her out of jail the following morning. Rainey was always in control of her own finances, and when the blues began to lose popularity, she returned to her hometown in Georgia. There, she owned and ran two successful theaters until her death. Hell yeah, Ma Rainey, mother of the blues. Next is Bessie Smith, who bailed Ma Rainey out of jail born 1894 and died tragically young in 1937. One of the greatest American singers of the 20s and 30s, known for her powerful delivery and often called the Empress of the Blues. I love these titles, show respect to these women. Her parents had both died by the time she was a teenager and to earn money, Smith began performing on the streets of Chattanooga with her brother. In 1912, she joined a traveling troupe that boasted the successful blues singer, Ma Rainey. Rainey would become her good friend and mentor. Though she started as a chorus dancer, Smith soon developed her own act. And in 1923, she signed a record deal with Columbia, releasing the first album on their new quote unquote, race records series. With the popularity of her song, Downhearted Blues, she became the most successful blues singer of the time, earning enough to live lavishly and travel town to town in her own private train. She married her husband, Jack Gee, around the time her first album was released, but it was a rocky relationship with affairs on both sides. Most of Smith's infidelities were with other women in her troupe, which sparked frequent fights. And when Smith discovered her husband had been sleeping with another singer, they separated. During the Great Depression, the recording industry took a hit, as did Smith's career. She started to make a comeback by transitioning into swing music, but it was cut short when she was killed in a car accident. For years, her grave was left unmarked until Janis Joplin brought her a tombstone in 1970. Next, we have Lucy Hicks Anderson, which is a story I came across in my own Facebook feed, shared by a rather wonderful activist friend, So this is another one that kind of led into the theme and the discovery of stories for this episode. 1886 to 1954, American socialite, chef and prohibition era entrepreneur. Growing up in Kentucky, she knew from a young age that she was a girl and insisted on wearing dresses and going by the name Lucy when she started school. At a time when the word transgender didn't exist, her parents sought advice from a local physician Incredibly, the doctor recommended that they raise Lucy as a girl, and incredibly, they did. Hell yeah. At 15, Anderson left school and began doing domestic work. She met her first husband, Clarence Hicks, at 34, and together they moved to Oxnard, California, where Anderson quickly proved herself vital to the local community. She worked as a nanny and chef, won awards for her cooking, and had a talent for preparing and hosting lavish dinner parties for the wealthy families of the town. She also threw welcome parties at the church for town visitors, going away parties for enlisted soldiers, and gave generously to charity. When she saved up enough money, she purchased a boarding house where she ran a successful brothel and speakeasy. Her good standing in the community made it easier to run her illegal businesses. On one occasion, when she was arrested for selling liquor during Prohibition, she was bailed out by the town's leading banker, who needed her for his dinner soiree that evening. There's a common theme throughout these tales of people getting bailed out the next day, or same day, by other members of the community or other folks who viewed them as important and essential and undeserving of being arrested. It's really great. So I love this. Of The banker was like, nope, I need her for my party. She had divorced her first husband in 1929. And in 1944, she married Reuben Anderson, a retired soldier. They had a happy life in Oxnard until the following year, when an outbreak of a venereal disease in the Navy was traced back to Anderson's brothel. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. The local doctor examined all the women working there, then insisted on examining Anderson herself, then aged 59. He went public with what he discovered. This led to charges of perjury for lying on her marriage license and fraud for receiving money as the wife of a soldier. Anderson became the first trans woman, let alone African-American trans woman, to defend her identity in court saying, I defy any doctor in the world to prove that I am not a woman. I have lived, dressed, and acted just what I am, a woman. Hell yeah. She and her husband were both sentenced to jail time while she was given an additional 10 years of probation and was prohibited from wearing women's clothes. So this is another common thread we'll see, transgender women, being forced to wear men's clothes and to be imprisoned with men. Honestly, one of the worst things I can think of to do to somebody who has struggled to be acknowledged as a woman. When they were released from jail, the couple was told they could no longer live in Oxnard. They settled together in Los Angeles, where they led a quiet life until Lucy's death in 1954. Next is the story of Ruth Ellis, from 1899 to 2000 this is from the legacy project out of chicago ruth ellis was born in springfield illinois to parents who were conceived in the last years of slavery her life spanned through moments of great turmoil and upheaval from the springfield riot of 1908 to the detroit riots of 1967 an endless backdrop of conflict from which ellis managed to extract an exuberance for life that was incandescent. She came out as a lesbian at the age of 16, and got a high school diploma at a time when fewer than 7% of African Americans graduated from secondary school. In 1936, she met her partner of 34 years, Ceciline Babe Franklin, with whom she moved to Detroit, Michigan in 1937. Ellis became the first African-American woman to own an offset printing business in that city. Her success as an entrepreneur from 1946 to 1971 inspired the couple to turn the home that they shared into the gay spot, a place where young gays and lesbians who were denied access to both white gay clubs and black street clubs could congregate, and enjoy a welcoming nightclub atmosphere decades before the Black Civil Rights Movement and the Stonewall Riot would begin to alter their outlook and options. Ellis became a fierce advocate for African Americans, senior citizens, and the gay and lesbian communities. She offered assistance to lesbians of color researching their history and their roots. She proposed a variation on the Big Brothers Big Sisters, where younger gays and lesbians would be matched as social companions with gay and lesbian seniors according to similar interests. And the Ruth Ellis Center, founded in 1999, continues to provide shelter and aid for LGBTQ youth in Detroit. Her extraordinary life was chronicled in the acclaimed documentary, Living with Pride, Ruth Ellis at 100, in 1999. And the city of Detroit recognizes her contributions every February, during Black History Month by celebrating Ruth Ellis Day. She died in her sleep at her home on October 5th, 2000 at the age of 101. Next, we will return to Queer Portraits in History with Josephine Baker, 1906 to 1975. Josephine Baker's story is a little bit more popularized. I've seen a few more posts about her story, but it's important to include hers here. American-born dancer, singer, actress, and the toast of France who became the first black international superstar, an activist, and a spy. Her parents were both vaudeville performers, and Baker grew up on the stage, but had little by way of food or money. She survived by dancing on street corners, which led to her first vaudeville job when she was 15. She saw a bit of success in New York City. But her career didn't take off until she traveled to paris at the age of 19. there she was an instant hit thanks to her signature danse Sauvage," performed in a skirt of bananas and little else you probably will find pictures of this very easily sometimes her pet cheetah joined her on stage incredible this erotic and quote-unquote exotic number fit perfectly with the parisian culture of the time and she was soon one of the most popular entertainers in the city. She had a hit song with Je du Amour and appeared in a number of films, most notably Zuzu, the first film to star a black woman. Hell yeah. Though she tried on occasion to return home, the United States never adored her like France did. In 1937, Baker became a French citizen, and when World War II broke out shortly after, she proved her loyalty. Baker became a spy for the French government, collecting information from unsuspecting German officials at parties. And when Germany invaded France, she used her celebrity to sneak messages across the border, written in invisible ink on her sheet music or pinned to her underwear. After the war, she was awarded the Croix de Guerre and turned her attention to the civil rights movement in America. She toured the United States in the 1950s, refusing to perform for segregated audiences, while writing articles and giving lectures about the racism she encountered. She spoke at the March on Washington and was unofficially offered leadership of the movement after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. She turned it down because of her children, all 12 of them, adopted from all over the world, and referred to as the Rainbow Tribe. She also had four husbands during her life, the first when she was only 13, and a number of affairs with women, including Frida Kahlo and Colette, though she kept these relationships a secret. Baker remained a popular and influential performer and starred in a sold out review in Paris to celebrate her 50 years in show business, just days before her death. Incredible. Next, we have Lorraine Hansberry, 1930 to 1965. American playwright, writer, an activist known for her groundbreaking play, A Raisin in the Sun. Her father was a successful real estate broker, and when Lorraine was eight, he bought a house in an all-white Chicago neighborhood. Their new neighbors tormented the family and tried to force them out, an experience that would re-emerge in Lorraine's later work. The resulting case went all the way to the Supreme Court, which eventually ruled in Hansberry's favor. At 20, Lorraine moved to New York City. She found work at the black publication Freedom Newspaper, met thinkers such as Paul Robeson and W.E.B. Du Bois, and involved herself in both local and global activism. She also met Robert Nemiroff, a white writer and activist. They were married in 1953 and moved to Greenwich Village, where Hansberry began to write full-time. As she worked on her play, she also began to turn her intellect towards her own sexuality. She joined the pioneering lesbian organization, The Daughters of Belitis, and contributed two letters to their publication, the latter. Signing only her initials, Hansberry described herself as a, quote unquote, heterosexually married lesbian, and wrote about the intersectionality of homophobia, misogyny, and racism. On one telling piece of paper, where she had written a personal list of likes and dislikes, she placed my homosexuality Under both categories. By 1957, she and Nemiroff were quietly separated, though still close friends, and Hansberry began discreetly dating women. 1957 is also the year she finished A Raisin in the Sun, a play about a black Chicago family at a crossroads. After struggling to get it produced, the play opened on Broadway in 1959, becoming the first Broadway play ever written by a black woman. As well, the first to have a black director. It was an immediate success, and Hansberry became the first black woman to win the New York Drama Critics Circle Award. At only 29 years old, she was also the youngest. She then wrote the screenplay for the Hollywood film Adaptation, though she had to fight their censorship at every turn. Sadly, it was only a few years later that Hansberry was diagnosed with cancer. She continued to work despite the pain she was in, writing essays, discussing race relations with Robert Kennedy at James Baldwin's invitation, starting a number of unfinished works, and completing the play, The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window, which opened on Broadway in 1964 and closed the night she died. Nina Simone, a close friend, released the song To Be Young, Gifted, and Black in memory of her short but influential life. Incredible. The intersectionality between identities and persecution is consistent throughout. Audre Lorde, 1934-1992. to 1992. American poet, author, feminist, and self-described warrior. She was born to Caribbean immigrants in Harlem, was so nearsighted that she was legally blind, and began to read and write almost as soon as she could talk. As a child, she communicated through the many poems that she had memorized and when those poems weren't sufficient, she began writing her own. She was the first black student admitted to her gifted high school and published a poem in Seventeen magazine when she herself was seventeen. In 1954, she spent a formative year in Mexico before returning to New York City to earn her masters and work as a librarian. Lord became involved in a number of communities where she never quite fit in. She stood out as a black woman among white feminists who didn't want to acknowledge racism and as a lesbian within the civil rights movement. Even in the Greenwich Village lesbian scene, she stood out for not subscribing to the ubiquitous butch-femme dichotomy. In 1962, Lord married a white gay man and had two children. The marriage ended six years later when she met her longtime partner, Frances Clayton. Around that time she released her first book of poetry and in 1976 she published Coal, the poetry collection that brought her to prominence. It explored her intersecting identities as a black lesbian feminist and the injustices experienced when one was triply invisible, themes she would explore throughout her career. In 1978 She was diagnosed with breast cancer and had to have a mastectomy, an experience she chronicled in her 1980 book, The Cancer Journals, and which led her to advocate for the disabled community. In 1982, she wrote Zami, a new spelling of my name, a quote unquote, biomythography, as she called it, about her youth and sexual awakening. And in 1984, she published Sister Outsider, which included her seminal essay, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House, in which she urged white feminists to confront racism and other related forms of oppression and to celebrate differences rather than tolerate them. Her insistence that her race, gender, sexuality, health, and motherhood were all unique but intertwined identities was an important contribution to what is today called intersectional feminism. She began to travel widely and made a huge impact on the Afro-German movement in Berlin. In 1988, her relationship with Clayton had ended and she began a new relationship with the feminist Dr. Gloria Joseph on the island of St. Croix. She became the New York State Poet Laureate in 1991 and died the following year after a long on and off battle with cancer. Huge props, huge props. Next is the black woman who is spoken the most of in this month, Marsha P. Johnson, 1944 to 1992. American activist, Stonewall Riots instigator, queen, mother, and saint. She moved to New York City in 1966, where her outgoing, ebullient personality made her a well-known fixture among the drag queens and trans women on Christopher Street. She was often homeless, but she was also known for giving her last few dollars away to someone who might need it more. When asked what her middle initial stood for, she would say, pay it no mind. She was present in 1969 when the police raided the Stonewall Inn, proclaiming, I got my civil rights, and throwing a shot glass at a mirror. The shot glass heard around the world is believed by some to be the inciting action of the ensuing riots. After Stonewall, as crossdressers were being shunted away from the mainstream gay rights movement, Johnson and her close friend Sylvia Rivera founded the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, or STAR. Securing a rundown apartment, they took in as many drag queens and transgender youth as they could, then hustled the streets to raise money so that their children wouldn't have to. In 1972, she joined the queer performance troupe Hot Peaches, And in 1974, Andy Warhol painted her portrait as part of his series, Ladies and Gentlemen. She fought for LGBTQ rights all her life and later joined ACT UP to advocate for people with AIDS. In 1992, shortly after the Pride March, Johnson's body was found in the Hudson River. The police ruled it as a suicide and refused to investigate the death further. Something we are seeing to this day entirely too much. Impossible suicides. Even ones that would be plausible clearly are not suicides if you look at it through the lens of racism. Next, we have Miss Major Griffin Gracie, 1940 to present. American activist, Stonewall veteran, mentor, leader, and symbolic mother and grandmother to many. Growing up in Chicago, She became involved early on with the local drag balls and came out in her teens without having the language to describe being trans. She moved to New York City when her family kicked her out and tried to make a place for herself in the queer community there. When the Stonewall Inn was raided in 1969, Miss Major was there meeting a friend. She joined in with the ensuing riots, was knocked unconscious by the police and awoke the next morning in jail. She would return to prison in the early 70s, where, placed with the men, she met leaders of the recent Attica riots who would greatly influence her later work with the prison system. She moved to California in the late 70s, eventually settling in San Francisco, just as the AIDS epidemic hit. She quickly dedicated herself to that cause, hiring other trans women to help care for the sick, and starting the Tenderloin AIDS Resource Center. In 2003, she joined the Transgender Gender Variant Intersex Justice Project before becoming its executive director. She has spent her life looking out for the queer community, particularly trans women of color in the prison system, and has earned a reputation as a pioneer and adopted mother to many in the queer community. There are plenty more stories to be found on Queer Portraits in History. I highly suggest going and checking them out. There was also a really wonderful sprinkling of music, which we will revisit with a guest in two weeks. Well, I'll be there in less than two weeks, but you will have it in two weeks. Lastly, I want to bring back the origin of a phrase. Now, this is usually unrelated, unless I can find some sort of crossover. But I have a list of some older phrases that I haven't really tapped into, and I thought I would get into those a little bit more. So this week, the phrase is, that's the way the cookie crumbles." Idioms are a curiosity when learning a language, that's for sure. And I've seen it crop up in this research about how hard it is to learn a language. And then beyond that, the idioms of these languages don't translate very well. Sometimes they do, but sometimes they truly don't. And I think that that's a curious part of language and something that's really fun to see and learn. I'd love to start doing phrases in other languages too, whenever possible. But since I know English, we're going to continue doing those. So that's how the cookie crumbles, and that's when the cookie crumbled, which I don't know that I've heard, but that's okay. The informal American English phrase, that's how the cookie crumbles, or that's the way the cookie crumbles, means That's the way the situation is, and it must be accepted, however undesirable. Which is supposed to have stemmed from that's how the ball bounces, or that's the way the ball bounces. It's kind of fun how these evolve. Language is so curious. The earliest instance of the cookie crumbling comes from the column Innocent Bystander by Ollie M. James in the Cincinnati Inquirer, on February 23rd, 1955. All of the calendars we received have been right so far every day of the year, but Eugene Grill of the US Playing Card Co. sent us the March sheet of an all sports calendar and it is somewhat loused up. It says that Ash Wednesday comes on Thursday, March 3rd, lists March 14th as Valentine's Day and says March 15th is the last day you can pay your income tax. The filing date has been moved back to April 15th this year. Well, as we say in the publishing business, Sometimes that is the way the cookie crumbles. I find it really curious that I didn't see anything anywhere else about it being something that is said in the, like, coming from the publishing business. So I think it's kind of funny that he coined it that way. I do know that a common theme with these phrases is if we can't find a distinct story that it stems from, it's often said colloquially, People are using this phrase and that eventually it makes its way into some sort of written form. And only a few days later, William Edward Vaughan, in his column, Senator Soper Says, published in the Muncie Star, February 28th of 1955, he illustrates the generation gap by contrasting, That's the Way the Cookie Crumbles, which had recently appeared, with its earlier synonym, That's the Way the Ball Bounces. So it says... The teenage lovely down the street reports that her father is unbearably square. To express a certain fatalism, he still says, that's the way the ball bounces, instead of, that's the way the cookie crumbles. Which I think is really fun that it became a generational thing, especially as we are seeing the Boomers and the Millennials and Gen Z or Zoomers All kind of interacting and passing judgments on the way that we speak and the way that we act. I think it's really wild and enlightening and illuminating to see that this is nothing new. Something that's been going on for quite a while. There's also the phrase, that's when the cookie crumbled. Which means that's when a decisive change in the situation occurred. So it's more of an irreparable event when the cookie crumbles. Another article alluded to the fact that a cookie can crumble easily but once that happens it can't be put back together which i think is a cool evolution from the ball bounces okay the ball bounces it's probably a sports probably baseball because if it bounces funny you can't catch it kind of a thing but i i think it's really interesting that the cookie specifically refers to the fact that you can't fix it you can't do anything about the cookie crumbling so there you have it a foray into queer portraits of history focusing on black femme stories the history of that's the way the cookie crumbles and a precursor to exploring black music appreciation month with our guest next time it's truly exciting and humbling to be able to have the guests that we'll have next time. I hope that you learned something new. I hope that this sparks you to go seek out more stories. A special shout out to Between Two Gays on Twitch, who gave me access to their list of queer history facts. This is what I was also pulling some research from before I found the Queer Portrait series. There is a lot of really great LGBTQIA2 facts focusing on the United States history, and a lot of it is post-Stonewall Riots, which is why I focused on pre that time when it comes to these stories. There's a lot of really great information here talking about being the first openly transgender person, how the LGBTQIA two plus community was able to evolve and awarding of rights. There's a lot of a lot of great history out there that you should absolutely educate yourself on. And there is too much for me to be able to get into today, but I hope that this sampling encourages you to seek out the history here. There's a lot of discourse going on about who is or is not welcome at Pride and how family friendly it should be. And we have to remember that the first Pride was a riot. The first Pride Parade was a year after that riot. And being on the anniversary of the Pulse Massacre, we're still overcoming and fighting hate in this regard. And that's before you start considering the intersectionality and the racism that factors into it. So a little bit, of a heavy note, but when faced with rainbow capitalism, you have to stop and think where this stems from, especially folks who are not part of the LGBTQIA2 plus community. If you're not in it, it's easy to view things as oversimplified to a big parade. So I hope that you seek out more history. I hope that you Uplift and celebrate your LGBTQIA2 plus family and friends. Donate to as many, like the trans law group is a really great one right now, especially given the anti-trans bills that have passed recently. Donate directly to individuals. A lot of us are having a hard time. I know that this has been a hard year and a half for everybody, but we often get passed over We often have to hide our identities. This is a really incredible time that we get to celebrate. But just like Black History Month, when you get outside of that month, it's back to business as usual. The rainbows go away, the representation dies down, the activism stops. So try to help someone in this community because we sure could use it. Thank you so much. For your continued support of WAUTA. I'm really excited to get into black music appreciation and history. We got a little bit of that with the blues here, but we also know rock and roll, house music. There are so many other genres that have been pioneered by black folks and they definitely don't get the credit that they deserve. So we'll be doing a more in-depth discussion next time with our guest, Xavier Woods of WWE, also known as Austin Creed, who is doing a lot of fun stuff with video games and tabletop roleplay games and G4 and beyond. But most notably recently for me, he's been teaching himself the bass guitar. So it feels perfectly appropriate to have him on to talk about Black Music Appreciation Month next time on Welta Thanks again. If you have any questions, concerns, comments, or future guests or subjects you would like to see covered, please feel free to reach out on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can find me on Twitch. You can send it directly to Gmail, The Wowta Podcast. Thanks again for all your love and support, and I'll see you soon. Wowta!